We are continuing in our exposition of Exodus. Exposition of Exodus. Um, I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 1. This is a continuation, though, of the, uh, the dialogue Moses has with Yahweh at the burning bush. So we're just picking up with three. It's the same, same scene, same setting. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they do not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, 
Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are desirous that you would teach us that you would aid both speaker and listener alike here on how you overcome so many obstacles in the, in the plan of redemption. You overcome all things to redeem your people out of slavery. Would this passage also be for us a reminder that you have overcome so much in sending your son to live on earth as a man, to die a sinner's death, though he was not one, and arise him from the dead and overcome all those obstacles to secure our salvation. Thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Teach us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, this is quite a long chapter, but as I said prior to reading it, this is still, this is still Moses at the burning bush speaking with Yahweh, the bush not being consumed by the flames of Yahweh, Yahweh telling Moses that he is holy and yet also inviting Moses. This is a paradoxical way in which God reveals himself, but that typically tends to be the case. He tells Moses to stand off, but yet invites him closer. He tells Moses he is the great I am. He is the sovereign, free one who does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He is the Lord, the I am, the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God of all life. And as he continues to talk to Moses, Moses had a great thing going on. He was, he was obedient, he was listening, he was asking the right questions, and then chapter four comes. And even though his first question makes it look like he's still, I don't know, asking some legitimate questions, we, we see what really happens. Moses begins to doubt God's plan. He begins to doubt whether either he's the right man for the, man, for the job, maybe doubt Yahweh himself. But in all of this, we see Yahweh overcoming Moses and his reluctance, overcoming Moses' disobedience with a, with a weird little story about Moses' son not being circumcised and the Lord seeking to kill him. And we also see Yahweh overcoming the biggest problem, which is the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's forces weren't the biggest problem. The Egyptian army wasn't the biggest problem. 
It was the heart of Pharaoh. And God would show himself sovereign over all things by showing himself sovereign over the heart. So here we see Yahweh overcoming all these things. Moses' reluctance and disobedience. Pharaoh, the adversary. And, and we see that the Lord takes up this deliverance, this plan of deliverance, and there are many obstacles, some from expected sources like Pharaoh, some from less expected sources like Moses. But nevertheless, God is alone in accomplishing the plan of redemption. No one's helping him. No one's helping God save people. Even God's own people, after they're saved, get in God's way. We grumble and complain. But there's nobody in the world that is helping God do this. In fact, God is overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, determined to save, and even putting up with, yes, a very righteous and godly man, but a, a very weak in faith man in Moses in this chapter. So, I would like to take that theme of God's sovereignty and his overcoming all hindrances and obstacles and then just turn that to say to, to us if we were to read this and learn something to appropriate for ourselves is how do we respond to God when he asks us things or tells us things which are seemingly unbelievable? I, I can't think of a time in the Bible when he tells someone a plan, a great, powerful, mysterious plan, and he says, do you comprehend all this? Are you intellectually awake and understanding of all that I'm doing? He doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't attack the mental faculty, the mind. He attacks, he attacks the will. And he says, do you trust this? He doesn't say, do you comprehend? He's not interested in your comprehension. He knows what you comprehend. <laughs> he knows whether you believe or not, but he desires trust and faith. And so that's what Moses is weak in. That's what we learn a couple lessons in here. After all, when was the last time we received ill by trusting in God? When was the last time we received good by distrusting God? He is revealing himself as the Lord of Lords, an eternal, self-existent fire, consuming fire, who's worthy of trust, worthy of our little, little mustard seed faith and trust. So, Yahweh overcomes these things and, and our, our response is to trust him at his word. I want, I want you to see here first how and what he overcomes. First, he overcomes Moses' reluctance. Okay, Yahweh overcomes Moses' reluctance. You see this in verses one to 17. Uh, a big chunk where Moses and Yahweh are kind of going back and forth. You know, it would be very prudent and plenty legitimate for Yahweh to say, Moses, <laughs> like we do to our kids, I expect first some obedience. You know, I told you this, obey it, listen, trust it, do it, right? But Moses, he doesn't. 
in verse one, anticipating Israel's unbelief, he says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? Now, granted, what Yahweh has put on Moses' shoulders is enormous. Walk into the throne room of the most powerful king in the world, Pharaoh, and tell him, Yahweh wants to worship with his people in the desert. And all, however many million of them, we need to leave now. Yes, Pharaoh, that's pretty much your whole workforce, (laughs) your whole labor force. It's a course, it's daunting, no doubt about it. But just because it's daunting doesn't give Moses the, the right to express some distrust to the Lord. So he says, what if they don't believe me? And, and Moses would be right. Israel, typically, not a strong believing people. But what does, what does the Lord do? On this one question, the Lord gives him three signs to say, I'm gonna overwhelm you with this one question. And hopefully with this one question, you will put to bed all these ideas that you're not the right man, they're not they're gonna listen, they're not gonna believe, or whatever it is. There's actually more going on, more, in, more exchange there, but the Lord says, okay, put out your hand, right? What's that in your hand? Staff. So he changes the staff into a serpent, It's truly a serpent because Moses runs from it. It's not some make-believe thing. Why a serpent? We we know that there's there's theology throughout the whole Bible. The Egyptians regarded the cobras as a religious important symbol. Maybe because God maybe wanted to turn the staff into a serpent to communicate to Pharaoh. Maybe. Maybe because he wanted to communicate the enemy behind Pharaoh is a serpent, the one in the garden. We don't know that. Either way, he changes the staff into a serpent and the serpent into a staff again. Next, he says, put your hand inside your cloak. So he puts his hand inside his cloak and he says, take it out. He takes it out and it's leprous. Leprosy was seen as a divine curse. Once you got it, it was was worse than COVID. You're stuck with it. You will be a leper for the rest of your life. You will be outcast and estranged, ostracized from your family, and you will live with nothing but other lepers. We would see this elaborated upon when God gives Moses these laws for Israel but leprosy was seen as a curse from the gods. God says, take your hand outside your cloak, and it was restored, like that again. Just like new. Just like new. Moses, having complete, he has no excuse to believe the Lord. He just did a, a miracle changing a staff into a serpent, and the serpent into the staff again, and his hand from leprosy back to health again, which, which is understood in that time as only divine cause. Only God can cure leprosy. So he gives him two witnesses, a staff and the leper hand. But before Moses can even let out another word, God says, if they don't believe those two things, I'm gonna give you another miracle to do which is actually going to anticipate the first judgment I will bring upon Pharaoh. 
I want you to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and it's going to become blood. And that's, of course, the first plague. Signs in the Bible, um, they meant a lot of things. Here, as they do in most places, they're there to validate God's representative. They're there to validate God's representative. Yahweh is giving these things to Moses so that he is validated in the eyes of Israel as truly sent from Yahweh. And the, and the miracles, that the signs that God is giving him to do communicate this God who is sending him is the God of all. Period. All gods, all life, all kings, all people, all everything. Only God can cure leprosy. Only God has sovereignty over the enemy serpent. And only God can take water and turn it into blood. And it is important that he turns it into blood. He didn't turn it into juice or milk. He turns it into blood. You see blood, you think death. Moses would be struck with the reality that what God is doing is not some fly-by-night kind of plan. God intends to do something serious. What, is it, what happens when Jesus turns water into wine? He's at a marriage feast. He's at a, he's at a wedding. What does, that, what does that show forth and fulfill in, in totality? The marriage feast of the Lamb. What is this sign showing in, in totality? Not just that a little bit of water will become blood, but there will be death upon the land of Egypt. So, so Yahweh shows him these things, and he's showing him that I am truly Yahweh. Remember, this is Yahweh introducing himself to Moses. Moses doesn't know Yahweh. He grew up in a Pharaoh uh, Egyptian home. Israel's been in Egypt for uh, over 400 years. That's, that's longer than we've been a nation. They, he's long forgot about Yahweh. So he's introducing himself to Moses and proving himself to be the God of his fathers and the one intent on saving his people. So what's Moses' response to this? God, perfect. I completely get it now. <laughs> no. He says... Uh, but I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, which was like just 10 minutes ago. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And what does the Lord respond with? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? So who makes him to speak? Who makes him to be quiet? Who makes him deaf? Who makes him seen or blind? God says, I've created you. I'm the inventor of the mouth. I know how to work the mouth. <laughs> I know how to make it so that he will hear you. It's not about you, Moses. It's not about you. In this, there's a quick rebuttal by uh, Moses. And he says, oh, Lord, here's the bottom line. This is truth. Please send someone else. That, that's the bottom line. Everything else was just pretend. Here, Moses' heart really comes out. 
He doesn't want to go. And frankly, like all of us could sit in the same sandals and say, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that mission either. But the anger was kindled against the Lord, uh, kindled against Moses. And here it is. In Yahweh's anger against Moses, he provides for Moses. He doesn't smite Moses. He provides for him and says, your brother can talk too. I'll send him. Now, Aaron, Aaron's in Egypt. Remember, we're at Sinai. Way, 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 way far apart. But he tells him, Aaron's going to actually come out and come looking for you. And when he does, you're going to tell him all that has taken place. What Moses has done here is a exaggerated humility. Um, and it is a it is a way in which people in the Bible have expressed themselves when they understand that the call upon their life has been overwhelming. There are, there are many times in the Bible when God uses someone and that someone replies to God in a way of excuses and humili- well, false humility, which just simply communicates this job is overwhelming for me. David, when he was on the run from Saul, claimed to be a man of no reputation. And yet, he was already known as a war hero. The Apostle Paul. He would say he is the lowest of all lows. In fact, he was probably the most influential apostle. This is just a, this is a literary device, an idiom, Hebrew idiom they use to say, I'm out of my depths. I'm, I'm out of my depths. They are out of their depths. But to be out of your depths would then, the best response to be out of your depths is not choose someone different, but help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Asking for signs doesn't have a good track record in the Bible. Asking for signs is almost antithetical to faith. I know we picked on Gideon a while ago, but what did Gideon do? The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, and without a shadow of a doubt, you're God's man. You're going to be used to feed the Midianites and, and so forth and so on. And what does Gideon do? Well, to show that you're true, let me put this fleece outside and if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know you're true. That happens. Well, okay, let's reverse that. If the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, or whatever I said the first time, opposite of, then I'll know you're true. Gideon asking for a sign, it was because he was weak in faith. He was distrusting the Lord. The Jews demanding Jesus for a sign because they were unbelief. The Roman centurion in, in Luke 7 says, just say the word and my, son will, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said that is great faith, greater faith than all in Israel. Asking for miraculous proofs by God as signs is a sign of weak faith. It's not a sign of great faith. 
our call is just to say, okay, I believe it. Help me. Not help me understand, help me with my comprehension. My call is, or our call is, is just to ask him for help. That's, that's trust. That we would consider who we're talking to. That we wouldn't consider all the facts of the situation. We wouldn't consider, oh, maybe God hasn't thought of this thing. Let me inform him of that. Let me become his counselor and tell him there's some things he hasn't actually thought about that might be really important to hear. That's not our role. No one has become his counselor. Our role before the Lord of Lords is simply to say, yes, Lord. That's right. Not understanding it all is okay. Even confessing I'm weak in faith, help me in my unbelief, is okay. Distrusting the Lord is not okay. Believing that the Lord's plan is wrong is not okay. So here he overcomes Moses' reluctance. Next we see, very briefly, he overcomes Pharaoh the adversary. The next, next obstacle is Pharaoh himself. Now, as I said, Pharaoh's biggest fight with God isn't his chariots and warriors and the empire. Empires crush other empires. There's only one person who has sovereignty over the heart of man, and that's the Lord. So, we go down a little ways, down into verse 18. Moses leaves the mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. He goes back to Jethro, asks if he can take his, his daughter, Moses' bride, and their sons to Egypt. And he, and he gives them his blessing, go in peace. So Moses is going, and then Lord says to Moses on the way, when you go back to Egypt, this is verse 21, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. The staff to a serpent, the Nile to water, uh, the uh, wild water from Nile to blood, uh, the leprous hand. These, these signs, do them in his presence. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay, this is, this is an extremely deep verse. What do we learn from this? What is going on here? Well, this doesn't mean, one, that Yahweh is a cosmic bully. And that because he's bigger and stronger and divine, he toys with Pharaoh maliciously and takes enjoyment from it. He's not toying with Pharaoh. However, he does have sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart to harden it. It also doesn't mean that Pharaoh isn't responsible for his actions because the Lord will hold him responsible for his actions. What it does mean is that God's sovereign power is so great, it's so far-reaching, it re reaches even your heart. Now, we have a tendency, because of Hallmark and other like-minded industries, that my heart is my heart. And it's private, it's personal, 
Um, it's, no one can touch it. No one can scar it. No one can affect it. It's mine, mine alone. No one can affect me at all to my heart. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, we know not, not only can each other affect each other's heart, but Yahweh says he has the power to soften or harden a heart. And, and that should cause us to jump for joy and stand with some sobriety and reverence before the Lord. Yahweh is the type of enemy of Pharaoh that he will not defeat. Yahweh can not lose. He reaches even the heart. God's sovereignty over the heart is, is obvious in Scripture. It's actually not, it's not unclear. It's very clear. Whether that's here, whether how that's quoted elsewhere in Romans, Proverbs 21.1 says, a king's heart, and he doesn't say a poor person's heart, but the person who's the most important person, who has the most sovereignty in the world person, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You ever held water in your hand? You can cup water in your hand. It, it, it's really easy to lose. It just trickles out. And with the, with the easy... With the ease of moving his hand, the Lord moves the heart of anybody he wants. And here, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. So his sovereignty over the heart is obvious. The Bible doesn't speak unashamed. It doesn't speak with kind of shame, like it's embarrassed to say that God has sovereignty over the heart. It's very obvious. But even though it is, we still have to deal with it with some humility because we are, we're talking about what God has supreme power. If he has supreme power over the heart, he has supreme power over everything. So in a, in a quote from Hervin Bovink, he's, he, he is a Dutch theologian. I, I wanted to read this to you because I thought it was a good encapsulation of accepting the truth that God is sovereign even over a heart and at the same time, holding that view with some humility. He says, believers do not claim to comprehend all this, that God is sovereign over good and evil. Believers do not claim to comprehend all this, but they do believe that the alternative is impossible, that God's a chaotic deity. That's an impossible view. This almighty God is also, as we believe, a merciful father. This is not a solution, but an invitation to rest in him who lives in unapproachable light, whose judgments are unsearchable, and whose paths are beyond tracing out. Therein lies our only comfort in life and death until we see our God face to face and our questions about these riddles cease. That's a great quote, great way of thinking. We're not going to not deny the Bible. It's very clear. Yahweh has sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart. 
over everybody's heart. At the same time, the mystery of that and human responsibility, culpability, and just judgments is sometimes past us understanding, but it's not past God's ways. So Pharaoh is an, he's an obstacle for the Lord, but really not at the end of the day. Because if he can reach Pharaoh's heart, he can, he can decimate the whole, the whole land, and he will. So he, he overcomes Moses' reluctance. He, he tells Moses he's going to overcome Pharaoh's heart. And then he says, well, we learn, he's going to overcome Moses' disobedience. And then we have this really weird situation here in verses 24 to 26. So he tells Moses to talk to Pharaoh, even though knowing this, Moses, Pharaoh is going to have his heart hardened by me, and all the signs that you do actually will only make his heart harder. Nevertheless, you're wanting to, you, you need to speak to him and say in verse 22, Israel's my firstborn. And here is where I want you to kind of pick up, pick up the themes that are happening before, so out of nowhere, we get this idea, we get this statement that at a lodging place on the way to Egypt, Yahweh wants to kill somebody. Where, where's that come from? Most translations are going to say Moses. He's seeking to kill Moses. The Hebrew just says him. Just has a nameless pronoun, him. But but to go back to Pharaoh just for a moment, I'm going to read 22 to 26 and make, make the connections of the firstborn. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, Israel, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. After studying this, it is my opinion that he is not seeking to kill Moses. He's seeking to kill Moses' son. Zipporah took a flint, a, a, a knife, a rock knife, cut off her son's foreskin, touched it to his feet. I know your Bible says Moses' feet. That's, it's, it's the in, translator's best attempt to interpretation. Touched his feet with it, probably Gershom's or an, another son of Moses, and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then because the son was circumcised, the death threat of Yahweh abated. Okay? So we have... We have here, and I think this helps us understand this. This is, I'm not going to die on this hill. This is very mysterious because it's a very short and abbreviated account, but nevertheless, it, it goes in line with what Moses is saying to Pharaoh. Yahweh says to tell Moses, or to tell Pharaoh through Moses, if you refuse to let my firstborn go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. There are questions about here. But then, on a lot, but then going on a lodging, going at a way, at a lodging place, he sought to put him to death. 
And the circumcision caused Yahweh's death threat to go away. There are questions that abound, and I don't have any answers for many of them. But this is, here are some answers. One, I think the words that Yahweh says to Moses to say to Pharaoh, okay, the words that Yahweh says to tell Moses to, t- to speak to Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh and Moses. They apply to Pharaoh and Moses. And the reason why I say that is because later on, when the last plague would occur, by the way, this is speaking of the last plague, the, the, the firstborn death, that applies to Israel and Egypt. Israel's, Israel's firstborn sons, though, are saved by blood on the doorpost. That was a, that was a impartial judgment that whether someone lived in Pharaoh's household or in Moses' household or any other Hebrew, Hebrew's house, the firstborn of the, of the womb and animals was going to die unless there was blood put on the doorposts. So that is one reason why I think Yahweh is talking to Moses, but at the same time, he's talking to the messenger too. <laughs> like, you need to live in obedience to me as well. And the second reason why I think he's talking to Moses is because Gershom almost dies here. Or we don't know if it's Gershom or um, Moses' second son. But here we go. We know this. Moses' uh, the, the circumcision was applied and, and left death at its doorstop, doorstep. Zipporah took and circumcised her son and that causes God to not want to kill him. Again, whether that him is Moses or that him is Moses' firstborn, we don't fully know. But what we do know is that the, the blood abated God's death threat. God saw the blood and said, that's enough. That, that's, that's just like, that's gospel. That's gospel. God would see the blood on the doorpost and, and the angel of death would pass over that house and go on to the next. When God sees the blood, the sin's covered. Or as a friend of mine says, it's under the blood. It's done with. It's atoned for. What do we see in the cross? What do you see in the cross of Christ? The son spills his blood and the father sees the blood spilt and accounts it as a legitimate sacrifice to pass over the legitimately guilty person. So we have in a a very, very, I spend so much on this little passage. <laughs> we have in this little passage here a very mysterious reason why the Lord wants to kill him. We don't fully, fully know. But what we do know is that this is a very small picture of the gospel. Blood is needed for redemption. 
Circumcision, circumcision was needed for someone to be in a good standing with Yahweh in the Old Testament. You're not circumcised and you're Hebrew, you're outside the camp, you're an alien. You can be a pagan, Gentile, circumcised, and you're brought in. But if you're a Jew and you're not circumcised, you're effectively a Gentile. And Zipporah had the mind within her to say, well, Moses, Moses, who's in charge of taking care of circumcision, whether of himself or of his sons, is out of step with God's ways. And because God will not allow someone to be called by him and walk in flagrant disobedience, he told Moses, you better get your act together or I'm going to kill you <laughs> or your son. That's, that's the bare minimum of what we know. Death threat. Zipporah, what, the hero really of the story here, not Moses, circumcises her son's foreskin and then abates God's wrath. Blood removes God's wrath. So this is a wonderful chapter. There's really deep things in here, but this is what we do know. We often don't work in harmony with God's plans. We hear God's plans and we think, not me. <laughs> not me. Got the wrong Kyle. Pete, Sarah, got the wrong Don. Hmm. We don't always work in harmony with God's ways. But God, being a good Lord, overcomes our reluctance, our lack of faith, our disobedience, and still continues to be no pun intended, dead set on accomplishing his plans. He is determined to save Israel. He chose Moses for infinitely wise and good reasons. But even Moses, the most meek man in the Old Testament, he writes of himself, comedically enough, even Moses was not a perfect man. The hero of the story isn't Zipporah. Surely isn't Moses. And even though this ends with Israel believing, bowing their head, and worshiping, they're not the hero either. God alone will accomplish salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No one else helps him. And it, I want to just close with this. We have the Lord using a chosen servant to redeem people from slavery. I know you guys have already heard the metaphors of Exodus and our redemption. But if, if the Lord could use Moses, a fallen, weak in faith at times, sinner, to redeem Israel from slavery to sin or slavery in Egypt, surely, most surely, he could use another chosen servant who perfectly obeys him, perfectly yields to God's will, 
perfectly obeys him, perfectly delights to be in union with the Father to accomplish even a greater exodus. Your salvation, in in a sense, the Israel's salvation rested on Moses. Our salvation rests on a better, much better Moses who faithfully executed the Father's plan without grumbling, without complaining, in perfect obedience, perfect submission, perfectly. And he took up your plight of slavery into sin and secured it with perfection. We often want to make sinners heroes in the story. Moses isn't the hero. Zipporah isn't the hero. God alone does salvation. God alone receives praise for salvation. God alone saves you, cleanses you, forgives you, clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. God alone does that. All we do is muck up his plans. And he overcomes our mucking of plans to secure your way to him. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, till up our hearts and place a seed of confidence in it. Place a seed of hope, of trust in it. You are so worthy to be trusted. So worthy to be rested in. We have no hope of our salvation being accomplished by anyone other than yourself. Thank you that you took that plight upon yourself and you sent your son who perfectly secured our redemption. It is not in our hands in the least. Forgive us for when we doubt you. Forgive us for when we want to inform you and be your counselor. Imbue us with a a submission, a childlike trust that we would look to you and we would just say, speak the word, Lord, and it will be done. Fill us with faith, fill us with hope, fill us with love for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can stand for our next song.